questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton, and today I am joined by a very special guest. Dr. Ben Ryan is a neuroscientist or postdoctoral fellow, for those of you in the know, you know what that means, at Stanford University. Ben is currently studying how psychedelic drugs alter the way the brain processes social information. Ben ultimately intends to supervise his own research lab, super cool, and serve as a professor at an academic institution. Outside of the lab, Ben shares educational science videos on social media to a collective audience of more than 800,000 subscribers. In his videos, Ben shares uh, breaking scientific discoveries, debunks, you know, those viral videos we all love, containing misinformation, teaches fundamental neuroscience principles, and educates on the importance of scientific research. He also provides guidance to students through a video series called Scientips. And you can find more from Ben, he's all over social media, obviously, on TikTok at uh, Brine, B-R-E-I-N, Instagram, Brine, and Twitter. I'll put these all in the description so you can follow him. I follow him. I find him very interesting and very interesting. Thank you for joining us, Ben. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And yes, so it's very confusing. My last name is pronounced Ryan. You so it's like right. brain, but, but brain. Yeah. It's yeah. I I make it Doctor Brain with an with an E because that is my name. But then I lead myself directly into people mispronouncing my last name. So it's it's my own fault. It's confusing. <laughs> but it's <laughs> but kind of clever. I like it. Yeah, and it's I love what you do, and I find it. I mean, there's so much that we could talk about today. I'll try to I'll try to rein it in, um, because. I mean, psychedelic drugs, we're going to have to have you back to talk about psilocybin if you're comfortable, because I have a lot of friends who are trauma specialists working with researchers on psilocybin's use in mental illnesses, especially trauma stuff. Um, so yeah, I'd love to pick your, your brain pun intended. Yeah. That, um, yeah. We can talk a little bit about that today if we get into there. Yeah. Yeah. If there's, if there's room for it and we have time, I would love to, cause I know a lot of my viewers out there have struggled with either, uh, medication, therapy, trying a bunch of things, still struggling with trauma symptoms and wanting something else. I mean, I, when I was doing research for my book, Traumatized, that came out last year, I learned about stellate ganglion block and how that helps some people with uh, trauma symptoms, like hypervigilance goes down. I don't know. I would love, like I said, I, there's so many questions that I would have for you, but even like vagus nerve stimulation and that improving mood. And like, I mean, I went down a rabbit hole of my own making when I was researching my book. And then my editor's like, people don't need to know all of this. And I was like, <laughs> yes, they do. So yeah, I think there's a, yeah, well, uh -huh. go ahead. There's so much cool neuroscience discussion to be had. Um, and the, you know, like you mentioned, I'm on social media. I make TikTok videos and all sorts of things. Um, and there's just always new things to cover. I have like a 25 page Microsoft Word document of ideas for videos that I'd like to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, there's, there's so much research happening all the time. It's just so exciting. So the, the number of conversations to be had just continues to grow. I know. I agree. It, it's funny when you say you have this huge doc because I do as well for video topics. And it's funny because when I got into YouTube, I mean, this is way back in like, I don't know, 2010, 2011. I remember thinking, I'm going to run out of ideas like right away. Like how much could I possibly? And then you get into it and you're like, oh my God, because I'm thinking broad terms. Like, well, I could talk about depression. I could talk about eating disorder. But within that, it's like exponential 
you know, video ideas. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like once I make a 60 second video on Alzheimer's, that's it. And then it's like, wait a minute, hold on. There's all these different things to talk about. It's so cool. Yeah. But yeah. It's a lot of fun. It it's is, a little overwhelming. It is. It is all those things. Super fun, super overwhelming. And so, yeah, it kind of helps to just like have that list and just check them off and add to it, you know, make your way through. I find it fascinating yeah. and I enjoy learning from you. So please keep creating, even though I know there are trolls on the internet and people can be stupid. Hang in there. We need more educators. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So if you're not familiar with AKA, I always reach out to my audience and I ask them questions. I let them know that you're going to be on. We have some really great questions, things that I'm interested to learn about, other things I have my own thoughts and I'm interested to hear your perspective as well. So let's just jump right in with question number one. This question says, hey, Katie, what happens in the brain when you dissociate? Does it reduce blood flow to certain areas of the brain? What happens in the brain when you do coping techniques? I am really interested to hear what happens with neurotransmitters and blood flow and brain activation when dissociating and when trying to get out of this state. Also, is there any research on the long-term effects of regular, regular dissociation for the brain? Thanks for creating this podcast. They are interesting and eye-opening. And there also was a comment on this that said, also does derealization and depersonalization impact the brain differently? Lastly, what does it look like on an MRI scan? Is it diagnosable just by looking at the brain waves? Now, I know there's like 5,000 questions within a question, but what happens in the brain when we dissociate? Do we know? Yeah, so um, there's not a whole lot of research on this because it's so elusive to study, right? You can't You have to catch just, it, right, when it's happening? Yeah, ex <laughs> exactly. You can't just induce a depersonalization episode and... You know, you can't just ask people to walk around with EEG electrodes all over their head <laughs> all day and, and, you know, mark, oh, it just happened. Um, but there is one study, which I think is really cool. And, you know, that's what I'm going to focus on for this discussion. Uh, it's from a, a lab of scientists named Carl Dyseroth um, here at Stanford. And it's, okay, it's really interesting. They had a patient. It's just one patient. So okay. there's a huge limitation. We have one person. Yeah, and one but, in your study. But hey. Right. Um, but this person had, has epilepsy. And in epilepsy, a lot of the time before you have a seizure, you have something called an aura, which is some sort of feeling or, you know, emotion. It can be different for everyone where this always precedes a, a seizure. So people will know, okay, I'm feeling something right now. You know, sometimes it's like a deja vu feeling. Um, and I know that, okay, I'm about to have a seizure. And that's a really good way for people with epilepsy and, and these auras. That's a really good way for scientists to study these elusive states like deja vu and depersonalization. And for this person, their aura was depersonalization or derealization. So they felt, you know, dissociated, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe, it would, maybe Katie, would you like to give like a 60-second oh, yeah. explanation of just sort of like what that means? Totally. Dissociation can come in a lot of different forms. There's many dissociative disorders when we're talking, you know, diagnostically speaking. However, in short, what dissociation is, is when our nervous system becomes completely overwhelmed emotionally, physically by something in our environment. It's like our brain pulls a ripcord because our, you have to think of our body. It's like a, it wants to help us survive no matter what. And so it will pull us out of being completely present. I almost, it's almost like, I always, I like to think of it as like, or like it floats us out as a way of not having us be fully present when something harmful happens. This happens a lot in, you know, scary, traumatizing, terrifying situations. So, and our uh, memory can also be really spotty. There's something called dissociative amnesia because we're not so present. It's like, we're not storing memories in the same way we would be if we were. And it's just a protectorant. 
I always like to think of it as it's really adaptive to help us survive through shitty times. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to think of it. And yeah, I always like to think of things that way, like a kind of an evolutionary perspective of it, this. If a state exists, it must have some benefit under some condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so so in this case, they wanted to figure out using this patient, um, why do they experience, you know, what in the brain happens? And so what they did was they, they recorded brain activity, um, like electrophysiological activity, rather than doing like a brain scan. And because this patient happened to have an electrode implanted in their brain and for treating seizures. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that when this person was experiencing this dissociative feeling, they saw this kind of strange rhythmic activity in a brain area called the posteromedial cortex. Um, and for anyone that's interested, it doesn't really matter, but it was three Hertz. So it was like the cells would fire three times per second. And that wow. is pretty much meaningless, but it's just kind of interesting that's to interesting. think about how fast that is. Right? Yeah. The, the like increased activity in this one area. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, and very like reliable, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like this specific pattern and it's just for anyone who's wondering what the posteromedial cortex is and what it does. Um, sorry, I have a dog and if you hear any squeaky noises or <laughs> bells ringing or anything, it's my dog. Um, so the posteromedial cortex is a part of something called the default default mode network, which okay. maybe you've spoken about before. It's, it's a, a, a network of brain areas that are active when you're just kind of like hanging out, when you're just sitting and you're not doing anything, you're not focused on a task. These are brain areas that are just always active. And the posteromedial cortex in particular is thought to be involved in like internally focused cognition and uh, autobiographical memory. So mm. like essentially putting that in, in lay terms is yourself. Like who am I? What defines me? So it's almost like this brain area that just sort of like regulates your internal perception of yourself. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to study, you know, how um, generalizable this activity in this brain area was in terms of dissociation. So they went to mice. This is a typically a, a mouse research lab. And what they did was they went into the mice to the posteromedial cortex and using an electrode, they stimulated that brain area at the same rate, three times per second, so three hertz. Mm-hmm. And um, they wanted to see if it induces any sign of dissociation, but how do you, how do you study dissociation in a mouse? Yeah, are they like spaced so, out? <laughs> You're like, they're not making right, eye yeah. contact. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> right. So what they did um, was they, they identified it a dissociation-like behavior. So ketamine, mm-hmm. which you also may talk about once in a while here, mm-hmm. um, is known to induce feelings of dissociation. And when they gave the mice ketamine, they found that if they put the mice on like a warm plate, typically if like a mouse touches its paw to something warm, it'll reflexively withdraw, yeah. right? But when they gave the mice ketamine, they stopped doing that. They like kind of just oh, sat there like, and it's almost like yeah. they're out of body, right? Like it's some sort of deep, deep personalization they're out of their body they're not experiencing things physically maybe um and what they found was that in the absence of ketamine if they just stimulated that brain area mm-hmm. the same rate that they saw in the epilepsy patient the mice would stop oh. reflexively touching or pulling away their paw interesting and they use that as um sort of an argument that this one signature of activity in this one brain area is sufficient to induce a feeling of depersonalization or derealization in the mice. So I think that is such an interesting study. Um, There may be others out there. I'm not really familiar if there are. I think that's the most like 
mechanistic mm-hmm. um, neurobiological study out there, and that one's pretty recent. It just came out last year. Oh wow! So it seems though that this this some sort of weird activity, abnormal firing in this brain area that just like regulates yeah, pulls your us out. perception. Yeah. It like removes us from self a little bit. That's so interesting because I think my 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 brain would have jumped to assuming that there was like some lack of activity in a certain part of the brain, not extra activity. You know what I mean? So that that's so fascinating Mm -hmm. that there is a part of almost like what I would call like our lizard brain. It's kind of just like our very base level keeps us alive, does things Mm -hmm. at a base level that that would be more active. That's fascinating. Yeah. And, and it gets into a whole bunch of neuroscience questions Mm -hmm. that are like, first off, three, three firing, you know, self firing, sorry, the self firing (laughs) three times per second Mm -hmm. sounds like a lot, but maybe that's less than normal. Yeah. Maybe it's usually like 10. I I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say that it's, um, it's probably more, but more importantly, it's like this rhythm, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like a, it's a very regimented firing pattern. Whereas normally it's, you know, your brain is responding to things and there's all sorts of signaling occurring and the patterns of activity are not so, um, like clear and patterned, but, Hmm. um, it's also, you know, this one brain area is thought to be involved in this, but it could also be connected with a lot of other brain areas that are involved in various other things. So maybe the increased activity in this brain area is actually, reducing activity in another brain area oh, yeah. <laughs> through like a dance. So you always, I always think about like the brain as a, a network, right? Yeah. Well, it's um, like, it's like a, you think of it almost like, I mean, it's a network, but it's also think of it like a, like a big corporation and each part, like, Oh, you're in HR. You take care of this stuff. Oh, you're in the financial department. You take care of this, right? We each have our roles and every, I mean, I'm sure it gets even more like, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, but like smaller, more broken down than just like your cerebellum is responsible for, you know, balance. That's why when you're drunk, you stumble around or like your prefrontal cortex is like, it's a planner. It helps you organize, you know, put together sentences and thoughts. Um, I'm sure it gets, you know, more detailed than that, but that helped, that helped me in school, like pass my test is like remembering that each part is responsible for certain things, but they also communicate and work together to make that business work. Do you know what I mean? You, the body of you as a business, it helps you operate. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. No, well said. I mean, I agree. It's funny because, you know, as humans get with the brains that we have, Mm -hmm. it's hard even to think about like what you're saying. Oh, cerebellum does this brain prefrontal cortex does this. Even there's so many different brain areas. It's hard to maintain a memory of all those things together. Yeah. But then you start getting into the even greater detail of, okay, you know, let's say, I don't, whatever, if the prefrontal cortex talks to the cerebellum, they have a connection and the cerebellum also talks to the thalamus and each of these individual circuits or groups of circuits regulate different functions. And so they all like each brain area plays a role, but it has these different relationships that can be like called upon to do certain things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it is just so complex. And the more we learn about neuroscience, and how the brain works, um, the more difficult it is to keep track of everything. Yeah. And it's almost like the more you realize you didn't know anything, you know what I mean? It's like it reveals more because even when I was reading, um, I was studying for, for the researching for my book that I wrote about trauma, I, it was, is out of my scope. And so I had to, there's a whole chapter on like memories 
And so that was fascinating because essentially we don't really know. We, we know a few parts of the brain that we think are responsible and, you know, the emotion storage versus it, it was just, it was interesting. But when you look at the brain structure, you can see how they're connected and you're like, oh, I could understand that if like, if the amygdala is firing, cause that's our fire alarm. Oh, that could put that off line. Oh, interesting. Okay. That might be why that's not put in, not, you know, we don't have memory of that chunk or this or anyway. The way they're all connected, I find truly fascinating. And I feel like the more I read yeah. it, the more I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is off topic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really think that neuroscience needs some sort of database. I've, and I've wanted to create this myself for a while, but I just don't have the capability. A database where, like, just imagine a brain, a diagram of a brain. And it's like every known connection between different brain areas oh. that, that we know of. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, what if we sh- showed... Or what if we found in some sort of disease that the prefrontal cortex is less active? Let's just turn down a dial a little mm-hmm. bit. Now, what's the result and changes in all these attached brain areas and connected brain areas? We'll make this one go increased. Mm-hmm. And then what will that one do to this? And just have like a, a computational program that just like does all these calculations for you. And that would be so much easier to help us understand why certain neurological conditions present with the symptoms that they do, because we may be able to detect the strongest change in this brain area, but the actual effect might be a totally different brain area. So totally. That's if it, anyone yeah. out there wants to do that, please do it. Well, and I wonder if AI <laughs> will help. help us out with that too, because it could like cull information and then, mm-hmm. you know, we could, it's almost like you have a brain you can play with to say like, Oh, I want to do this. What happens? And then that would, yeah. um, as someone who understands the need for research on animals, but doesn't always like it, that would mean that we wouldn't have to do that. And that would be great. Do you know what I mean? In some ways, yep. um, we'd probably still have to do some to, in order to learn enough to set this up. But you know, that, that's interesting. That would be cool. So if anybody out there wants to do it, yeah, go for I it. I absolutely agree. And this also, um, you've shared me with the questions that we're mm-hmm. going to discuss today. This isn't one of them, but, um, we could talk a little bit about the, you know, the, the efforts that are being made to replace the need for animals in research, in neuroscience research. Um, I agree with you, you know, there's, there is a need, unfortunately, for animal research because a lot of questions just can't be asked. Yeah. Like, like this, the ketamine study I just described. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also like, you know, a lot of times it's very important research. And, and um, so if you'd like, we could go down that rabbit hole. If not, we yeah. can move on to the next question. We'll, we'll, we'll do it maybe at another time when we have more time to talk um, and go down that. But yeah, like I said, there's just so much I could talk to you about. But there was one more <laughs> yeah. chunk of a question within this, and it said, um, so we already answered what happens in the brain when you dissociate. Does it reduce blood flow? It sounds like no. It's just one area is a little bit more stimulated. And then there was a question on top of it said, what happens in the brain when you do coping techniques? Now, as a non-neuroscientist, my guess would be your amygdala calms down. Your limbic system is, like, somewhat soothed. Would that be correct? Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure. I Again, I don't know how much research there is on this. Um, by coping technique, can you describe a – give me an yeah, example of a coping uh, technique. Exercise. Okay. I know that's yeah. actually, that's probably not a good example, but that's one of them. But like journaling would be a coping skill or even talking with a loved one or a therapist or someone. Yeah. I mean, you know, speaking sort of, um, yeah, general, just, yeah. Yeah. Just kind of guessing really not, not referencing any literature for this. I would think, you know, when you're, when you're kind of deep in any emotional state, whether that's fear or anxiety or something like derealization, I feel like you, 
you just need to kind of like snap your brain out of it. You need to like pull your brain into a different mode of activity, right? Mm -hmm. It can can sort of get caught into these patterns. And I feel like that's what really is happening. It's almost like you're kind of refreshing your brain Mm -hmm. and, and pulling it out of that pattern and sort of going back to maybe that default mode network that I talked about Mm -hmm. where it's just a baseline, your brain exists, you're alive, (laughs) you're staring at the wall, (laughs) thinking about your day. That's yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of like a rebooted almost. Um, and yeah, like exercise, breathing techniques, things like that, I think are really helpful for kind of like allowing your nervous system to like get a grip on itself and and be like, let's relax. Cause you know, I, I, everyone deals with stress and I find that those things are definitely extremely helpful for pulling out of those states. No, totally agree. And our nervous system can be like a runaway train, you know, it gets started and then as the symptoms build, it's like they build upon themselves. It's like, oh my God, my heart is racing. Oh my God, I think I'm going to have a panic attack. It'll, you know, and we can do this like, we just like spiral into a pit of despair, like real quick. And coping skills can help slow, if not stop that process and give us a chance to at least like, okay, you know, more like in in a way, like solution focus, like what can I do to feel better? What could, you know, and I think often if we, if we don't take those beats or do some coping, then we will just, you know, panic attacks, dissociation, we'll just be trying to like our nervous system will do what it can. And that's not always the, not always the best, not to say our nervous system doesn't know what's best, but it's just protecting us. It's like back down to that, like animal instinct. It's just doing what it can to help its person survive. It doesn't really think so much about like, you know, this might really bite us in the ass in three years because we didn't really process it. It's like, we must survive. That's its only task, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's funny because when you're, when you're experiencing those sort of runaway train moments, um, it's important to, you can lose control, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your brain is this kind of ongoing debate of neuroscience of like, do you control your brain and your body or does your brain control you and oh. your thoughts? Like who, who is the real master? Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's like posteromedial cortex, sort of like autobiographical sense. It's funny because it allows you by like honing in on that, like, okay, it's going to be okay. Let me get a hold of it. It's like you're taking control of your brain instead of allowing your brain to take control of you. Yeah. You know, and I feel like that's empowering and that allows you to be like, let me breathe. This is going to be okay. I'm in control, you know, the situation and myself. So, but I think that's such a fascinating idea. It It is interesting even just to think about like who's in control. I mean, my knee jerk is like, it's 50, 50, but I don't really, I mean, that's just like, that's just my opinion, you know, has no basis in fact or research or anything like that, because I could never, as a therapist, I believe in the, we have the power, but that doesn't, it's gotta be 50, 50. Cause we still have like that, that animal instinct or whatever we want to call it. Like we talk a lot about like lizard brain and lizard, like it's like you're just that bare bones survival type of stuff that happens. And so there's going to be that, but then we get to decide how we react. You know, it's, uh, if we react or if we respond to it, like how do we manage? Mm-hmm. Um, because I know personally I can be like enraged or really stressed out, maxed out, but on the outside I can be like, you'd have no idea. And that's not yeah. necessarily something I'm proud of, but it's helpful to get through something until I can do, do something to deal with it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So many topics to talk about. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm like, and it's, it's also <laughs> going back to that. So let's make one more comment mm-hmm. on this and then we can move on. But the, it's also context dependent, right? If mm-hmm. you're, 
in the woods and you're just kind of walking around enjoying the breeze and looking at flowers and stuff, you're fully in control. But then if a bear jumps out at you, mm-hmm. one moment later, you're absolutely out of control. You're mm-hmm. not making that decision of what am I doing right now? No. Your, your body And is, your pupils your, your dilate so is. you can see better. It pumps, you know, adrenaline, blood. You don't have to go to the bathroom. It's like, that's not important mm-hmm. right now. Or it's like, we really have to go. Let's go now because we got to get moved. Like so many things just happen without your any consent from you. <laughs> right. And you probably dissociate in that moment, not only because yeah. it's like, I'm out of control. And then afterwards, you kind of wake up, and it's like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm alive. I made it out of that bear. Wait, there was actually a bear? Like, that's yeah, crazy. and then you, like, come around but- to it, which is why all of us um, from, like, the after effects want to talk through it. It's, like, our, our initial reaction to try to, like, process what happened as we come back to it. We're like, oh, my God, can you believe that happened? No. Ooh. And we, like, try to – and it's our way of trying to piece together what took place so that we can, like, deal with it, like, process it, roll it away yeah. into our memory bank. Interesting, but yeah, yeah, fast, fast. The brain is fascinating. So much out there. So much out there. Okay, so I think we answered all of that about dissociation. What happens in the brain? I find that fascinating that there's a little part of the brain they know. Well, they think through that, you know, one end, and then a follow up with uh, with the mice. But I had no idea. Again, I would have liked the person who asked this question. I would have assumed there was like a lack of activity or a lack of blood flow or waves or you know. I would have thought it would be a lack of. So that's really fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Question number two says, hello, Katie and Dr. Ben Ryan. I'm curious to know more about neuroplasticity and what someone with complex PTSD can do to strengthen memory and learning skills. I'm a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and I find it difficult for me to memorize and retain while I'm studying in school. Any advice? And then there's also a comment on this that asks about, like, how does neuroplasticity itself work? Um, from what I've heard, the pathway signal changes. How does it change? What affects these changes? So neuroplasticity. That I've always said it's like, you can teach an old dog new tricks. That's what that means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Neuroplasticity gets thrown around so much. I see it on TikTok a lot, you know. Um, and I'm glad that people are interested in it. It's just, it is a complicated topic. And uh, so I'm happy to be able to talk about it right now. Generally, you know, okay. Let's start from the beginning. Mm-hmm. When you're born and you're very young, mm-hmm. your brain is developing and you know, there's this nature versus nurture. Nature being like your genetics and like your family history and then nurture being like your experiences, like how you know, you're treated by your parents, things like that. Mm-hmm. And the nurture part of that, the experience part has a very big role in shaping who you are, of course, right? And and it does so because it shapes the way your brain is actually developing. Your experiences shape your brain. And so early in life, you have a high level of plasticity. So what is plasticity? Um, like we were talking about earlier, how mm-hmm. we have different brain areas and they all connect with each other and you know they all communicate and they have to, to for an effective brain to work. Those connections, the strength of them, um, not necessarily like whether or not they exist. You know, I think generally in a healthy brain every, going across the whole entire population everyone's brain is roughly the same we're like my prefrontal cortex talks to my thalamus so does yours so does everyone's it's not that like you will lack that connection but what will change between people is like how how much control does my prefrontal cortex have over my amygdala and mm. things like that you know and and the strength of that control depends on the strength of literally the 
synaptic signaling, the ability to release neurotransmitters and say, here's a message. And for the receiving brain area to say, hey, thanks for that message. Now I'm going to pass it. that along to yep. my buddies. Yeah. <laughs> and the more, really, I mean, the brain is like a muscle in that the more these neural circuits, I will call them, uh-huh. are exercised, the stronger they get. So if a brain area is constantly talking to another brain area, it will, it will strengthen those connections over time. Um, so this is synaptic plasticity. Specifically, that's called long-term potentiation. If a synapse is activated a lot, and then the net result is that the cell will be activated more. So when one cell says, hey, here's a message, the receiving cell will be like really, really activated or really, really inhibited. Gotcha. So overall, defining neuroplasticity, it mm-hmm. is a change in the strength of brain connections with their repeated use. Gotcha. So it's almost like, um, I mean, I've described it in the past. <laughs> you can hate this analogy because either love it or hate it. But I always think of like our brain is almost like a balloon filled with sand and these messages as like marbles. And if you roll one over a place that like hasn't been rolled before, it's like, oh, it might get there, but it might take a little time or it might be a little misconstrued, not the full message. It's like, oh, that marble barely made it. Ooh. But then if we've been rolling that marble for a really long time, it's a really deep rut. And it's like, oh, I know this. It's like a highway. I can just I fly right over there and I do that thing and it's gone. The message is received. And so I talk about this a lot with my patients because when we try new skills or to do things differently, to break patterns, it's going to be hard at first. And that marble might not make it to where we need it to go, but we got to keep rolling mm-hmm. it. And it's like, we might need to like bumper bullet, right? Like make sure it gets there, try it again, and it'll slowly get faster. Is that? Absolutely. Okay. No, I I'm like, am analogy. I, I might be just like <laughs> pseudo psychology over here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I think it's, it's important. And I think everyone listening to this already knows that we don't actually have marbles rolling around in, sand <laughs> in our brain. <laughs> That's what they say. But, you lost your marbles. I'm just kidding. They don't. <laughs> They're everywhere. No, yeah, but no, that's a great example, a great, a great analogy for it because it's, that's exactly right. I mean, just like, like I was saying with the muscle, you know, you go to the gym and you want to, you want to do bicep curls and you try with 15 pounds and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. But then you keep doing it. And then eventually you're able to do 20 pounds, 25 pounds. Um, that's just how your brain is. And so what I was saying is that when you're developing, there's a high level of plasticity because it must, right? You need yeah. to learn, your brain needs to, to learn to shape itself based on what you experience. That's important for survival. That's why your brain can do it. But as you grow into adulthood, the level of plasticity that your brain has tapers off. Mm-hmm. And essentially by the time you're, you know, senile, I don't know. Um, yeah. Let's the say level of plasticity. Yeah. Sure. The level of plasticity is like almost no, I mean, at that point you're like, your brain cells are starting to die too. So, oh, but, interesting. Um, okay. yeah, so, so plasticity is, you know, kind of this downward trajectory over time, but there are ways to increase plasticity temporarily. Um, mm. one of those ways, which I'm not encouraging anyone listening to do this, but science is observing this is things like psilocybin, psychedelic mushrooms. Oh, um, gotcha a lot of these serotonin serotonergic so they activate the serotonin system mm-hmm. um drugs like psilocybin and lsd and like dmt yeah um, dmt is this interesting um really quickly could you tell people where dmt shows up normally just because a lot of people maybe don't know what dmt is yeah i just i just made a video on dmt it's oh, one of the most misunderstood things out there mm-hmm. um a lot of people think that since it's okay, DMT is a really strong psychedelic. It's like, you can think of it like psilocybin, which is the compound in psychedelic mushrooms. Um, it's very similar. Actually, the structure is very similar. And DMT is actually produced in the brain, which is like such a weird mystery. And it's, yeah. you know, people always, a lot of uh, like 
yogis typically talk about this and they say like that you can activate the DMT and, and yeah, the video I was debunking on TikTok basically said you can have a brain gas. I saw that one. It was like, that's not true. But um, you you did it much. Yeah. I couldn't have explained why it wasn't true, but you did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I just posted that uh, mm-hmm. today, the second one about the brain gas. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. But the idea with with DMT is that yes, it is produced in the brain naturally. Scientists don't really know why, but psilocybin mm-hmm. activates serotonin receptors and in your brain and induces this intense psych- psychedelic experience, right? But we have serotonin in our brain all the time, mm-hmm. which activates the same exact serotonin receptors. So why don't we just, why aren't we hallucinating all the time? Yeah. The, the proposed explanation for that is that when you take psilocybin, it's activating those receptors at a level that's way beyond what would typically be occurring inside your brain naturally. Same thing, you take DMT, it's activating probably, you know, I'm, I'm actually not sure if we know this yet, mm-hmm. I don't think we do, but activating probably the same or similar sets of receptors to induce an extremely intense experience but the DMT in your brain is at such a small level that it's not going to evoke that experience. Otherwise, gotcha. again, you would be able to You'd just hallucinate all right the now. time. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, but it's typically DMT is thought to be produced in the pineal gland, mm-hmm. um, which is this tiny little gland, but it's also been shown that it can be produced elsewhere and in the brain and, um, in rats, there's, there's a study where they actually remove the pineal gland and show that the rats have just as much DMT in the brain. Oh, interesting. So it's those. coming from somewhere else too, that can like, ramp up production if one of the factories goes offline. How interesting. Okay. That's very cool. Yeah. So back to neuroplasticity. Yeah. Yeah. So, so these agents, things like DMT and psilocybin, um, have been shown to evoke like massive neuroplasticity. Maybe that's, I don't know, maybe a psychedelic neuroscientist would be like, Hey, don't say massive, but it evokes plasticity. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is thought to increase, sort of cognitive flexibility. So you can kind of think of when you're in, when you're young, you know, you have an experience, let's say you go to the grocery store and you're trying to buy a candy and the person behind the counter yells at you really, really badly, right? That'll hurt you. And that'll really stick with you for a while. You might have sort of a PTSD. If you go to the grocery store, you might be nervous about talking to the cashier. Mm -hmm. Those things really impact you versus if you go right now, let's say you're 30 years old, you go to the grocery store, someone yells at you, you're like, what a jerk. Yeah. (laughs) might bother you for like an hour and then a couple of hours. And then, you know, next day you forgot all about it you're not as, you're not as plastic. Mm. And so the ability for that experience, any experience to impact you is, is essentially, I would, you know, generally talking is greater when your brain is more flexible to adapting. So you can kind of think of interesting, sorry, continue. Yeah. You can kind of think of like taking psilocybin. Um, I like to use it of like, if you have like a, a, a hat or like whatever, a piece of plastic and you hit it with a blow dryer mm-hmm. and it gets really flexible, you know, mm-hmm. and then maybe you put it on your head and you bend the hat to how you want it and then it cools down and it stays where it is. Yeah. Right. So that's sort of like, it's like you're increasing the plasticity. It's like we're warming it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And it's allowing it to become malleable and whatever occurs during that period, you know, if you're shaping the hat, if you fold the hat in half, it's going to be folded in half or closer to that. Mm-hmm. If you take psilocybin and you have a really deep experience and you kind of confront some internal traumas, you might be able to kind of like take those physical structures, maybe even in the brain and like, kind of like reshape them a little bit and kind of alter your perspective on things that might be damaging to your mental health. So that's where the therapeutic utility seems to lie. Yeah. Because I mean, a lot of times, um, my patients will get stuck up. Even my viewers write in all the time about feeling kind of like hung up on certain parts of their trauma. And the fact that like, 
I can't forgive myself, like the shame spiral part of it. I can't forgive myself for my participation in this because of the abuse, or I can't, um, I, I still love my abuser. I can't let go of that. You know, there's this weird, there can be these like kind of like walls or, or struggles to kind of push past or like, I can't, uh, talk about this chunk of my trauma without dissociating. So I'm not able to process it because I can't even stay present. So, you know, overwhelming to my system, I get completely dysregulated. I could see psilocybin then allowing us to maybe do that or in another way, because my friends who've um, done magic mushrooms in the past, I haven't, but you know, I'm no judgment on anybody. I'm just, I was a total nerd, afraid of drugs and my brain doing things. Nobody knows. But back in the day, <laughs> some of my friends would say, that like they had a good trip and it like helped them like see a thing in their life in a new perspective. Like they're like, I had such clarity. Oh my God. And yeah. So that's almost like what we're hoping to trigger. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And for things like PTSD, mm -hmm. right. We, you can address specific traumas, maybe, yeah. you know, and we're kind of off the topic of the question, but yeah, sorry. Um, we got, yeah, but I, do, I happen. I but it's, do that a lot. <laughs> It's so interesting. I mean, come on. I'm, I'm hoping anyone interested in this question is, hope, is interested in this answer, even if it's indirect. Um, but yeah, the thing about these trials is that, you know, we're not talking about people taking psilocybin and, and sitting on their couch and watching Netflix, right? We're talking no, about doing things. Uh, yeah. Purposeful yeah, trip. It's kind of. yeah. It's psychiatrist guided. You know, you have mm -hmm. a, you're screened first to make sure that you're not predisposed to psychosis because um, a lot of these agents can induce psychosis, mm -hmm. which obviously you don't want that to happen for someone, especially if they have PTSD or something. They're already, yeah. you know, already they're trying to better themselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, they're screened. And then actually what happens during the, the trip, and they do trip, it's not a microdose, they trip. Um, they put on headphones and, and play some music that they like. Sometimes I think they usually put on like a mask too. And they really ask oh. the person to go deep internally mm -hmm. and to, to really just kind of have an introspective experience. And then once in a while, they'll kind of like pull the headphones off and be like, hey, just so you know, I'm here. If you want to talk, you know, a psychiatrist will be there mm -hmm. to guide them. Kind of like a Sherpa, pretty much. Wow. Um, interesting. Yeah. It's so interesting. And just for any listeners, you know, this is such a sensationalized topic right now. Oh, there totally. is a lot of promising research in it, and it's such an interesting field and it's blowing up. Um, but I do want people to know that, you know, the, the limitations, the, there are limitations to this, right? Yeah, and like, it's still early days, not, you know, it's yes. like, we're still learning about it, but it's, it's great. I think it's hopeful, especially for people out there who feel like they've tried everything. Like, I mean, even in my practice, I had a patient who'd been like inpatient. She'd tried, uh, EMDR. She'd tried all different kinds of medications and nothing could not eradicate. Cause that's not really the word I'm looking for, but help her heal from the intensive trauma she sustained as a child. And so having that be another option is exciting because you're like, Oh my God, there's hope for me. And yeah. I think it's cool that they're at least able to research it. And I think there's only a couple States. Is it Colorado and California that allow the research? Is that it? Um, I'm, I'm not sure actually, but that sounds like it. I mean, you're it, in California. I, two yeah. places. I know we're doing it here. We are doing the research here yeah. at my lab actually. Um, that's super so cool. It's really cool. But yeah, so, so getting back to, you know, yeah, assuming that the person who, mm -hmm. Sorry. <laughs> plasticity and yeah. And kind of, you know, how can we increase plasticity? Mm -hmm. Um, aside from taking psychedelic, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, agents, um, one thing that's, that's really good for in increasing neuroplasticity in adults is exercise. Oh, there's already, okay. you know, a lot of known benefits to exercise, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, but 
it's actually pretty incredible. There are studies in those with depression, major depressive disorder, um, that where they have them do exercise. You know, some patients exercise, some patients don't. And first off, exercise pretty reliably from what I've seen improves symptoms, so improves okay. mood. And very interestingly, if they do some sort of fMRI studies, I, I haven't really looked deep into this literature, That's so I can't fine. talk too, too much yeah. about it. But um, they it changes brain activity, essentially. It, it restructures the connections between brain areas. So like certain brain areas are more active, some brain areas are less active. Mm-hmm. And that in, implies that there is neuroplasticity occurring, right? That these yeah. changes are, or these, these connections are changing in their strengths. And that in and so, of itself is neuroplasticity, right? <laughs> right, exactly. It must be some plasticity going on. So um, I definitely recommend exercise. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if I can really talk about this, um, but I think it's so cool. So I'm going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I guess if we, if we take this out, I'll just email you after. <laughs> okay. I'm actually working, I'm working as a consultant on this project where they're developing a, um, a, a workout program to address shame and trauma. So it's combining, it's, it's essentially using and taking advantage of the heightened physiological arousal associated mm-hmm. with exercise and, and potentially the associated neuroplasticity mm-hmm. to ask the person, you know, doing the exercise to go internally and try to like address some of those, you know, conceptions and, that they have. And that makes sense. I mean, I've for years when I used to work in the eating disorder treatment center, we had like trauma informed yoga. I have a lot of viewers who there's a group hope for recovery. They offer free groups online and they're led by clinicians and they have some movements, therapeutic movement. And, um, I'm even working on a program with my friend Cheryl Burke, who's a dancer. Um, she's been on Dancing with the Stars forever, if anybody's wondering why that name sounds familiar. Um, and movement through therapy. So I, I, I totally see that connection and I could understand why it would be so helpful. It's fascinating that it's neuroplasticity. And it makes sense because as someone who's an avid yoga person, I try to do yoga at least like three times a week. And because I create for a living a lot, or I'm just doing research and kind of in my head and like trying to make sense of information and things. Like if I feel stuck, sometimes I'll just go do yoga and like, you know, other part of the house. And then I'll be like, Oh, like I'll, it'll like clear things up for me. And mm-hmm. I've never really given it much thought other than the fact that like, we know it's good for us and blah, blah, blah. But it's probably helping. Like I'm trying to roll a marble into a new location and my brain's like, it's like doing all this heavy lifting and I'm tired and you know, and then <laughs> yeah. you do that and it's like, Oh, I got this. We can do this. Yeah. This yeah. makes sense. And, and that's also sort of reminiscent of the coping mechanisms we discussed earlier, yeah. right? where you're kind of like stuck in this rut of like my brain just thinking this way and I hate it. And then you go do something else and you breathe a little bit and you mm-hmm. do some yoga and you're like, wait a minute, that there's the solution right there. It's right. You know, it kind of opens new doors. So yeah. Um, yeah. It, so get your so body I, moving I, people. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And as far as, you know, what to do, um, I always encourage people to just do whatever you're doing now. If you want to enhance the benefits, just do something more. So if you're not doing anything, maybe try going for a 10, 15 minute walk every day. You know, if you're already walking, try jogging or maybe lifting weights or swimming or something. If you're doing that, then maybe go into the next level and extend your workouts. You know, it's just to achieve benefits from where you're at currently, just try to enhance whatever. Yeah. And I love that because it's like meet you where you're at. If you're not doing anything like you know, even if it's cold where you are walking around your apartment or your home and a little bit and stretching, like any kind of movement is better than no movement. And so just, you know, mm-hmm. meeting people where they're at. And I find personally, um, changing my workouts up 
Like, I think that's why mm-hmm. I like yoga because each class is different. But I've been doing this like LEK fit. It's on like a little trampoline thing. And I like lift weights, which I never usually do. And But I'm getting older, right? I'm 38. So I'm like, got to keep that bone density. So like doing little weights there. And then I was doing like a hit workout. And so I just kind of like mix it up, you know, um, you know, Russian roulette style. And then I feel like because I'm not focused on the task, like the, the worry task, I'm focused on like the exercise task. That's when I like can get that clarity or break through that barrier and be like, ah, I think because, and I think that's why I always believe in like distractions always have their place, even though they might not help us process something. If we distract ourselves from that old behavior, maybe, or that old pattern that we've been doing that we don't like, then and only then can I like think outside of it. Otherwise I'm just too in it. It's like when I, I'm sure you do this too, when you're writing, uh, I can feel really stuck and I'm like, I don't know how to get this point across. I'm like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Oh, so frustrating. And I just have to step away from it and like distract myself by doing something silly, playing fetch with my dog, doing a workout. And it's funny cause all the things I do are actually movements. Mm-hmm. So maybe hmm. anyways, fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And also I should clarify, mm-hmm. um, like it's unlikely that if you're you know, you're writing and then you decide to go out for a walk or something like that, that like while you're walking, um, suddenly your brain just like melts into this plastic that can like do, oh, yeah, like, no. you know, I, I <laughs> yeah. want, I don't want listeners or viewers to, to misunderstand that, that it's more so that, um, like reliably exercising and, and, you know, like I said, it doesn't have to be sprinting. It could be walking, mm-hmm. but doing something daily is generally going to maybe increase your overall plasticity and make you more, your brain more amenable to changes mm-hmm. and, and, you know, flexibility. Okay. So. Gotcha. Yes. Agreed. And there's also no magic moments. I don't want people to think that I like go out and then like have these epiphanies. It's more like <laughs> I've been doing all of this work on something and I just can't think of a solution or I can't think of how something connects or how I want to word something. And then I'll be like, Oh, that could work. And then I go back and mm-hmm. like do the rest of the work. <laughs> you know, it's like, not. Yeah. it's not like these, Oh my God. I mean, you do have aha moments in therapy in life, but that doesn't always come. Yoga is not a, you know, Yoga doesn't equal epiphanies. <laughs> right. You know what happens to me too is I'll, I'll be writing and I'm like, yeah, same thing. Oh man, like, how do I get this point across? And then I'll leave. And I'll be like, there it is. There it is. Yep. And I'll go sit down on my laptop and I'm like completely lost, lost it again. It. Like I, I need to go back and, and do what I was doing <laughs> once more. Totally. I used to, um, I also have it before bed and I, I keep notes on my phone of thoughts. Sometimes they make sense. Sometimes they don't. But if something yeah. pops up, I'm like, oh my God, that's perfect. Then I'll like jot it down because otherwise it's lost forever. And then the morning or later, I'll be like, oh, what was that? And I just cannot, the recall is not there. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. I always, just to anybody, general tip, take notes of everything. I have like 100 notes on my phone Same. of like, you know, I'll write down like things to do, ideas for videos, whatever, you know, the appointments. But I also have just like, if I if I have like a really deep insight, mm-hmm. if I'm just working and I kind of take a break and like something just hits me that I'm like, whoa, I never thought about my life before this way. I have a note of, of insights and things mm-hmm. like this. It's mine's you know, called thoughts. Just, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> I have a exactly. Big just, yeah, just write everything down. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I love journaling, and it's kind of like our form of journaling. Journaling doesn't have yeah. to be you know, dear diary. Today I did. It could just be bullet point thoughts of things that pop up and things you realize about yourself, your life, or your situation. Mm-hmm. So somebody, let me just, I want to walk through this question, make sure we got it all. So they're saying, okay, we talk about neuroplasticity a lot and they're asking what they can do. We talked about that to like strengthen memory and learning skills. 
So I recently recently did an interview on the podcast with Dr. Jalal, and he works at Cambridge, and he specializes in sleep paralysis. And I learned something interesting, and you can probably speak to this a little bit too, Ben, but I don't don't want to put that on you. But I want to just bring this up so people, if you didn't hear that episode, you hear it here. We He found through his studies that the deep sleep that exists right before a REM sleep, so if you guys don't know, there's like stages of your sleep. I've talked about how important sleep is because it's when our brain like essentially does housekeeping. It's like, we don't need that Spanish we learned from fourth grade. Get rid of it. Put it in the trash. And I loved Inside Out because they did a great job of showing how like things just get schlepped off and they're like fall into that abyss. You know, remember her like uh, was her imaginary friend fell in there. And you're like, no, but like she wasn't using him. She was growing up and it wasn't necessary. So unfortunately, I'm sorry. He had to go into the bin. And so our brain does that every night. Anyway, Dr. Jalal was saying that like when we have uh, traumas, a lot of times deep sleep doesn't happen. We can have nightmares, flashbacks, things that wake us up. A lot of you told me you struggle to fall asleep, stay asleep. All things sleep related can be like a total shit show. Therefore, that deep sleep is often not being achieved. And then my brain goes into, of course, memories are going to be hard to form because you're not getting that time to like clean your brain, to put things into narrative story. I mean, there's a lot of ways that things our brain does while we're at rest to kind of help us process what took place that day. And like, if we're doing the inside out model, turn it into the marble and roll it away to long-term memory. If it's not getting that opportunity, it's almost like our brain is just a mess, right? It's got like bits of things that we don't need and like for uh, little chunks of memories here and there that it doesn't know which day they're associated with or where they came from. Um, And so I would assume going back to this person's question, if we, as a child suffered sexual abuse, sleep might be something that's difficult for you and it might be making memory formation and recall really difficult. Um, Not to mention that we know depression affects that deep sleep and, you know, not to get too one thing to the next, but then my brain goes to, well, of course, then concentration difficulties would be one of the like key symptoms of depression. And so all that to say that another thing that you could try to do if you're trying to improve these things would be to work on your sleep hygiene. And I have an older video, um, I think it's like five tips for better sleep is what it's called. So it's called five tips for better sleep, Katie Morton on YouTube, and it can pop up. Um, I walk you through, I'm sorry, no animals in your bed. Everybody, I got a lot of hate for that, but I'm just telling you, they move around, you move around. People don't sleep as well when there's other people in the bed. Um, But getting our sleep hygiene back in order, one of the easiest things you can do is try to sleep and wake around the same times. Um, Anyways, all that to say that I think if we could work on improving our sleep, not medication, not melatonin, you know, just regular trying to sleep, then I I think based on what we know, memory concentration should improve. What do you think, Ben? Am I, you have, you have my 100% support on all of that. Um, I also, I have, my dog sleeps in my bed with me (laughs) and I think it's the sweetest, cutest thing ever, but my sleep quality is absolutely worse. Um, You know, but I, it's a price I'm willing to pay. I've adapted, but yeah, sleep is so important. Um, I would not be able to do what I do without all the sleep I get. I aim for like eight to nine hours oh, every same. single night. If I, I need if nine I get less. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I know seven and a half is like what the average, you know, we should be getting, but like I'm a nine, like a solid yeah. nine. And then I'm like firing in all cylinders. <laughs> But yeah, then anything less okay than that's like to get more. just the ratcheting down of my functionality that day is just. Yeah. It's like, you might as well, if you get, for me, if I get like seven hours and 15 minutes, like might as well have just stayed up all night. Like I feel like I'm going to die. Same. <laughs> I can't function. It's not going to work. I like, 
Yeah. It's just not coming to me. It It's unbelievable, actually. I mean, to consider the whatever, how little that is, like seven hours versus eight hours, it should make no difference, but it makes a huge difference for me. Maybe it's all in my head. Maybe I'm like, oh, I see the number. I'm like, "Mm." that's what I wonder too. I've been trying to focus less on how much sleep I get and how Mm -hmm. I feel because Dr. Jalal also said that if we wake feeling rested and refreshed, that's the best indicator for how we're going to do that day and how we're going to Mm -hmm. be able to process and form memories and concentrate and all of that. And I was like, oh, so it's almost that like 50, 50, right? It's like the how much of what our brain really needs and then what we actually tell ourselves about it. Do you know, it's like how mm-hmm. much control do we have over it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Some especially if you perception. wake up and you're, if you wake up and you're t- telling yourself today's going to be a bad day. I mean, yeah. you're definitely not getting off on the right foot, but <laughs> totally. regarding, um, the, the nightmares and everything. Um, by the way, side note, hold, I guess, um, we may want to, I I would much rather talk about sleep and this stuff for a few minutes mm-hmm. than, and like maybe cut out like one or two of these other questions. Um, so we can get there when we get there, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but so regarding this idea of nightmares and, and trauma and depression, um, I'm, I, the reason I became a neuroscientist was actually because I had a terrifying nightmare. It was so scary that I woke up and it legitimately caused me to reshape my entire life. I immediately oh, changed majors, yeah. changed my whole life trajectory. Um, and that happened to me once again more recently too, where I also, you know, just such a bad nightmare. So I've always been so interested in nightmares and dreaming and sleep and the purpose of dreams. And just the other night I was laying in bed, falling asleep and it just hit me. I was like, this has to be the purpose of dreaming. So, you know, obviously we know that that dreaming and sleep, of course, is important for memory consolidation, like mm-hmm. you're talking about. But one of the biggest questions is like, why would we have a nightmare? If mm-hmm. dreaming or sleeping is so incre- incredibly important for so many functions, why would we be built with a... Yeah, the ability <laughs> to like mess it up. <laughs> right. Wake up from... It would disrupt disrupt your sleep. Wake up with tons of adrenaline. You know, what? what's the point? There must be some... Like I said earlier, if it happens, there must be some benefit or maybe there was a benefit for it at some point. My suspicion... And my, and I'm so excited about this theory. I actually looked it up. Someone already proposed this in the scientific. That's always how it is. I'm like, aha. And then I'm like, damn, somebody figured this out. (laughs) Uh I'm like, Nobel prize coming my way. And then I like, look it up. Oh, (laughs) but yeah. So the idea is nightmares give you the opportunity to simulate threatening experiences. Uh, So if you're existing, whatever, thousands of years ago and saber toothed tigers are live around you and you're at risk of being attacked by a saber toothed tiger, you don't want to wait until that happens to figure out how you're going to act during that experience. So a nightmare gives you the opportunity to fight that, that saber tooth tiger in your dreams and, you know, feel like kind of prepare a response. And so it makes sense that you would once in a while have a dream about something that is deeply threatening or scary or concerning to you. So, and it also is really interesting because years, you know, years ago when it was more survival based, like what the example I just gave mm-hmm. now, you know, in general, um, human beings, most human beings are not really concerned about their survival on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Americans, let's say myself, we are fortunate enough that the things we have to worry about are like humiliating, embarrassing things. So it's funny that mm-hmm. nowadays when you look at humanity, the most common nightmares are things like being in public naked yeah. or like losing your front teeth, things that could humiliate you and, yeah. and change your public reputation. And it's so interesting because it's like your brain is like, doing this thing that it's is so valuable to it 
but it like doesn't really have to worry about dying. So it's like, let's just pr- pretend something really embarrassing happens and like think about how we would act. Because that seems you know? really threatening. Because that's the interesting thing about our brain is that in order to keep us alive, it's constantly looking at our environment for threats and mm-hmm. trying to prepare us for it, right? Because again, survival, survival, survival. And that's so fascinating. That makes sense why nightmares exist because it's almost like a dry run. Mm-hmm. Okay, what would I do? Which, you know, I mean, it's funny because I don't think I've had any nightmares where I do anything embarrassing. I have these crazy nightmares even as a kid. And the person always looks the same, which is weird because I don't know this person. It's not like somebody I know. But they're trying to break into my house that I grew up in, which, my, by the way, no, nobody lived. My mom sold it. Like, nobody lives there. I don't know who lives there. Um, and I try to lock all the doors and I always get everything locked that they're trying to break into. And then I get to the front door and I go to lock it and they, like, push and then I wake up. <laughs> Mm. I'm like every single time <laughs> over oh, it's over. Yeah. It, and it's interesting because then, and so then if you think about something like a childhood trauma, mm-hmm. it, you know, I'm just theorizing, mm-hmm. but if the purpose of nightmares is to simulate threatening experiences, when you experience a new unexpected threat in your life, like a traumatic experience, mm-hmm. maybe it becomes advantageous. Your brain thinks to continue to simulate that experience over so that if you're confronted with that situation again, then maybe you'll be more prepared for it, you know? Yeah. And so have, when you have something scary, like a near death experience or, um, you know, like sexual abuse in this example, mm-hmm. it may be your brain's way of like, just trying to prepare for the next. Yeah. You know, so, so your next time it doesn't occurrence. happen. Right. Cause we're always trying to like pr- not protect ourselves. So next time I don't want that to happen. So I'll prepare ahead. Right, right. It's, you know, and, and it's, it's a failure of the brain in this case, right? Mm-hmm. Because then it affects mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just such an interesting, I don't know, I'm, I'm personally very inclined to, to thinking and talking about dreams. I think it's such a fascinating Agreed. mystery. It's, it's sleep, dreams. It's it, very interesting. Um, yeah, I'll let you know in the Dr. Jalal interview, because we talk about sleep paralysis and a lot of different things with regard to that. And I found, yeah, interesting. And again, I was like, there's so many questions I have for you. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, <laughs> you want to respect people's time. And with that in mind, I know we don't have a ton of time with you. So I want to try to get through at least another one or two questions here if we can, if not, you know, we'll do our best. Um, mm-hmm. question number three, wow, we've only made it. This is question three. <laughs> this is, um, <laughs> how does developing a mental illness in childhood affect your brain long term? I had severe OCD when I was around 10 years old and I still deal with it as an adult. I know you can be symptom free, from certain disorders like OCD that may develop at any time in your life. But I feel like it's always and will always be a part of me since I've had it since I was a child and it's so ingrained in my identity. Thanks so much. I actually want to study neuroscience in the future. So this is an amazing guest. I know. Love to hear that. Yeah. I, um, and my brain went to, um, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording the ACEs study It's called adverse childhood experiences. And they talk about how having, and this is obviously not related to mental illness specifically, like having a mental illness, this is more about like abuse and having adverse childhood experience. And, you know, more of the like environment specific type things that they talk about that and how that can lead to struggles with our physical health as well as our mental health into adulthood. So I just want this person to know that we've no study after study after study that having things be part of our life and affect us when we're younger the younger we are, we know that, you know, kind of the more long-term effects we can have as adults. So don't think that anything's wrong with you for feeling this way and knowing that, you know, 
it, it can not, ch I don't want to say change the direct, the trajectory of our life, but it can, it can affect us and like our identity, who we think we are and well, as well as our ability to function in our life. Yeah. So my PhD research was in, um, the genetics of autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I, you know, I'm well-versed, I, I suppose, in the idea of like, what, how does, how do various neuropsychiatric conditions develop specifically when they're driven by some sort of genetic change? And, um, so I wanted to provide, you know, sort of on the other hand of what you're talking about, the childhood adversity, mm -hmm. um, the genetic component of things like OCD. So OCD, you know, anything really you can OCD, bipolar disorder, autism. Um, this, they're all, all of these conditions are associated with very diverse changes in the brain. And, um, <coughs> sorry, mm -hmm. my dog. <laughs> he agrees. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if you're born with a specific genetic mutation, right, let's say you have a gene that is really important for like, like those synapses, those connections between brain cells and between brain areas. Let's say mm -hmm. here's my synapse. Yep, synapse. You have a cell who sends a message and a cell who receives the message on mm -hmm. this side. And let's say that when the cell goes to send the message, we know this to be true. The message, which is a neurotransmitter, literally just like a little molecule is in a vesicle. It's just a little bubble that mm -hmm. just gets pushed out. And then the other cell takes it in. So let's say you have a gene mutation in genes are essentially blueprints for physical proteins. And that bubble, the vesicle is a protein. So if you have a gene mutation in that vesicle that carries that specific neurotransmitter, then when your cells try and signal that way, it, the vesicle is not going to work properly. And it's going to end up not being able to transmit that message appropriately. And if that, that vesicle, whatever that gene, mm -hmm. um, is specifically involved in signaling in a certain brain area or a certain type of signaling or whatever, and that, whatever that is, is associated with maybe attention or, you know, social engagement or anxiety, whatever, that is how you will end up with, you know, whether it's autism or OCD or, or um, ADHD. So you can kind of, I hopefully after that quick explanation, you can kind of imagine how a specific genetic mutation, which you can't control, you're born with it, yeah. can change the way that your brain functions, maybe in a permanent way or um, if it's not permanent, it might change the way that your brain responds to experience in early life. Just yeah, the like way I was you like take it earlier. in, right? Because like you're gonna, yeah. it's like we have lenses in a way that we're gonna see things through. And if you have like an OCD lens, you're gonna look at things from a more anxiety-driven space, right? Or how that could play into maybe some of your obsessions. Like if we're obsessed with checking the stove, let's say uh, a certain number of times to ensure safety then we're going to view the world maybe more as an unsafe place or that there needs to be more checking to ensure that we're okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I'm going to use autism here as an example for this. Um, this is sort of a theory, whatever. So, um, just kind of an idea. I'm not saying that this is actually true, but let's say for example, like I was talking about the plasticity in the brain when you're young, right? You have an experience, um, let's say you're, you're having, you're engaging in repeated social experiences. You're going to elementary school, you're playing on the playground and those experiences are activating certain parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. And with each experience, you're learning new things, right? You're learning that, Oh, you know, when I pushed that kid, they didn't like it. And you know, when I said this thing, it got kind of a weird response. You know, you kind of learn how to socialize, but if let's say you have a specific gene mutation in a part of 
that process in your brain. So when you're learning those signal, you know, when your brain is signaling to take in that experience and learn that process is maybe not being able to occur properly because of that genetic mutation, then it, it may affect your, your sort of like social acclimatization. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. so whether or not that's rel- relevant to autism or something else, but, um, I just want to use that as an, as an example to explain how like uh, genetic change, which is nature, right. Mm-hmm. And the nature versus nurture can interact with nurture, nurture. Yeah. to change the way your brain develops. And, um, that's something that a lot of people I think don't really consider. And so in this case, um, I had severe OCD when I was around 10 years old, the question says, mm-hmm. and I still deal with it as an adult, you know, your brain goes through various developmental periods, right? And if you have an experience that alters the way your brain's functioning or genetic mutation or something, some genetic change, um, it may alter a certain period of that development and your brain may function differently. But then as it goes through the next stage of development, some of those changes might be like kind of become more flexible or covered up or other brain areas might sort of like compensate. Um, So it's possible to experience certain brain states at certain periods of your life and then have, they can go away, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they yeah. can also appear later. And if you're working on it too, cause I know specifically with OCD, the best treatment is actually like exposures, which I know everybody with OCD just cringed, but we find that unlike, let's say like Tourette's, if you hold back from having a tick, then you can go into what's called like a tick attack where you like cannot help. And you like, will tick a bunch. Like, let's say we're trying to hold together together for a job interview and we'll go out in our car and like tick for like 40 minutes. Um, but with OCD, if we put off the compulsion and put it off and put it off, we find that then the anxiety, although we feel it coming up and we're like, do it, do it, think bad things are going to happen. And we're like, oh, nothing bad actually happened. And it's like, we're proving in kind of to Ben's explanation of like, that's nature and nurture together. Then we're taking uh, nurture and we're showing nature. We're like, Hey, it's actually not that scary. Don't worry. We're okay. And it's like, we can slowly, but surely kind of assuage that fear that, that something bad is going to happen if I don't check this a number of times. And yes, it takes work. And yes, it takes time to still weed out of our system. Cause when we get stressed, we're still going to be like, got to do that thing. Um, cause that, you know, back to our conversation, my horrible description of like the marble rolling in the sand with that rut still there a little bit. And it knows it and our brain's like, Oh, do that thing. That will make us feel better. Um, and so it might take us a little time, but it can get better and it can, you know, lessen as we grow older, if we keep working at it. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting too. I have OCD and my, my OCD is, is, um, like productivity oriented. Oh, like I'm, it, you know, my, my compulsion is like, if someone emails me and they're like, Hey, can you do this thing for me? I won't be able to do anything. If I want to sit on the couch and relax and it's late at night, like I can't relax unless I go and reply to that email because I need to have like the clear headspace oh, of needs to be like, out. nothing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm, it's a, it results in me being very productive, but again, at the expense of cost. my own happiness. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. So I know that we're limited on time. So I just want to, for anybody listening, since I hearted some of your comments, I feel like we've answered quite a few of these. There was a question that we, I had pulled that said like from a neuroscientific perspective, what does it mean to fully process things, particular in terms of trauma? We talked about that a little bit when it comes to like seeing it from a new perspective, allowing ourselves to not be so reactive while we do it, right? And stay present. We talked about dissociation. I feel like in some ways we've kind of answered this. If we can get a chance to have you back on, maybe we'd get through some more of these questions. There was also a person who asked about antidepressants and them not working for some people. Stay tuned 
because Ben and I will be doing a video about how antidepressants work. So we will get to that. Um, and then there, the other question were, okay, out of curiosity, are there any differences or patterns in the brain that occur in people with problems such as eating disorder and self-injury? Do we know anything? Is there any differences there? Is there a quick, I know it's like nothing's a quick answer, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there, there is, you know, like I was saying about just a few minutes ago, OCD, mm -hmm. autism, whatever, yeah. bipolar, any of these things, there are a multitude of changes that are detectable in, yeah. in the brain. Um, which makes sense. And, you know, I think some people are like, oh, I don't like to, like, if I have OCD, I don't like to think about the fact that my brain might work differently than, yeah. than what someone might call but it. everybody's brain, brain right? works differently, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's important to, to acknowledge and accept that um, because, like, that's that makes you who you are. You know, I think we're all blessed to have these, like, brains and mm -hmm. <laughs> be alive and be able to do all the things that we do. And I think, you know, a difference in the way your brain functions is just like, it's similar to like, oh, my hair is brown, right? And like your hair is a lighter color and like I shouldn't feel bad that my hair is brown. You know, like yeah. we're all we're all individuals. And um, so, but what we see is that like, you know, in general, a certain change is more likely to be associated with maybe a certain like symptom of a condition like OCD or, you know, ADHD, like a certain brain change is associated with a uh, greater difficulty maintaining attention. Yeah. So to answer this the question, um, Definitely, yeah. There are a a wide range of um, of neurochemical and neurobiological changes. Um, if anyone's interested, I just pulled up a review article. Mm -hmm. um, it's by Guido Frank mm -hmm. is the first author. It's published in Child Adolescent Psychiatry. Wow, it's a long journal name. Child <laughs> Adolescent Psychiatry Clinical North America. Holy it's abbreviated, moly. so I can't really tell. Yeah, it's 2019. Frank and the the paper is called the neurobiology of eating disorders. And I'll link and, it in the description, you guys. So if you want to check it out, you can check it out and read and there's more. There's a yeah, and there's a you know you can read the paper. There's also a really great figure, which is just a I'm looking at it right now. It's a graph and it's like neurochemistry, gray matter volume and cortical thickness, white matter That's volume, and it goes through every just bullet points of every associated change known um, in the brain with eating disorders. So there, you can find review articles like this. Um, and you know, if I wanted to go through this, it would take me quite a bit to, yeah. to explain all this. So it's good if you want to read up on it and, um, don't be afraid just in general for everyone, don't be afraid to go and find, um, relevant scientific literature to guide your understanding of certain things. You know, this reading these papers that are review, pa review papers, where they're not like testing things, but rather they're just summarizing and explaining things. These are really great resources, um, to get an understanding because these are the people who study this on a daily basis, they go into their research labs and, uh, and ask these questions and read the literature. So they know it all. And it's generally, you know, acceptably written where anyone can understand it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this seems like a good review. So okay, I, I perfect. Can yeah. I'll link that in the description. And there was another question that we didn't get to, but we really answered it. I feel like it was about essentially like memory. And I feel like we spent quite a bit of time on memory recall and like sleep and its importance and what could happen if we had traumas and all of that. So hopefully the person who asked that question also feels like we got through that. But um, like I said, Ben, if we're able to have you back, we will. And if you anybody has questions that you felt like, oh, we didn't get to it, don't worry. You know, hopefully we'll have another chance to ask Ben questions. Also, you can check out his social media and he answers all sorts of questions. So you can hop over there. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thanks for sharing your expertise and your brain with us. We really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. And just, again, I do take questions on my social medias. Um, you know, I, if you give me a question and I think it's interesting and I'm curious about the answer or I already know the answer, mm -hmm. 
Even better. Good news for me. Um, yeah, I, I'll make a, you know, I make TikTok 60 to 60 to 90, 120 second videos, just sort of like summarizing and presenting like, here's what you should know. And, you know, I put a lot of hours into like reading the background description and stuff. So it may seem like a, a quick thing, but, um, but yeah, if please message me your questions or comment them on my videos or whatever. Um, and yeah, I would love to, to answer some questions and yeah. Thank you so much, Katie, though, for having me on. And I of hope course. this was an interesting discussion for those listening. I definitely it was enjoyed for it me. Yeah. Me, I enjoyed it. It made too. me think. <laughs> same. Yeah. Same. Always appreciate it. Well, thank you, Ben. Thank you. Questions you've always wanted to know.